300 of them drank from cupped hands, laughing like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that uh, laughed, I will save you and the Midians into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. This is God's word. You may be seated. I mean, I love the stories where, uh, where you've got God speaking to men and you know, people getting ready to, uh, to glorify Him and to trust Him and uh, people drinking like dogs. It's a great story. Father, thank You for the ways that You bless us and the ways that You lift up our eyes so that we can see You and to see You with, with growing clarity and with a further vision, Father, for the way that You would have us trust You and the way that we follow You step by step every day. You are great to us. You are precious to us. You are our treasure. And Father, we long with all of our heart to do more than just sing and, and, and to study Your Word. We long to be in Your presence and to be in Your presence for all of eternity. But in the meantime, Father, as, as we, we live in this life with Your Spirit in us, longing for that time in which all things are renewed, we pray, Father, to be trusting and obedient and faithful and loving and all of the things that You would have us be in this life, not only to bring You glory, but also to help people to understand the greatness of Your presence in our lives and that that, that blessing is available to them. So help us, Father. Help us to live our life on a different kind of a plane. Help us, Father, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and to know thoroughly and completely and profoundly and rightly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I may have told you the story about uh, a course I took one summer while I was in grad school. Royce Money, before he became the president at ACU was, was teaching a lot of ministry classes and how they pertain to the role of a counselor or counseling uh, as a minister in churches. He's teaching a class on counseling for church leaders during the summer that I'm taking it. And uh, one of the major tests in grad school, uh, it was a grad uh, level uh, exam, the major test was over the different schools of psychology that we had been talking about. And I studied and studied and studied and studied. I knew that stuff forwards and backwards. Got to class, lots of multiple choice that just kind of zipped right through. And then got to the one essay question that he warned us about. And the, and the question or the task of the essay was, describe Virginia Satir and the Satir School of Psychology. Uh, she's really famous. She is really well known for, uh, for really developing a way of doing counseling that involves not just the individual, but in, involves uh, a marriage or, or family. It's sort of a st systemic way of, of doing counseling. Uh, she's, very, she's very famous for a lot of quotes. She was very quotable. She said something, I can't remember the quote exactly, but it, it basically has come into pop culture today as it is what it is. And she said basically that life is not what you think life is. Life is what it is, and learning how to cope with the life that is, is the success to life. And so it's kind of come into our modern culture as it, it is what it is. Now, <laughs> I'm looking at that piece of paper, and I've studied Virginia Satir, and I've gone blank. 
I can't, rem- I can't even remember how to spell her name. And I, you know, I just have this, uh, you know, this, this flash, this insight that says, well, why don't I write a note to Dr. Money and just say, uh, you know, I'm remembering everything about uh, Freud and the Freudian school. So I wrote at the top of this page, Dr. Money, I promise that I studied and know this stuff like the back of my hand, but I have gone completely blank on Virginia Satir. Here's what I know about Freud. Hope you're a gracious man, your beloved student, Mark Absher. I got it back, and out of the eight total points, I got five. There was grace. But for me, the moral of the story has always been, it's great to know someone when you go into a test. Now, let's recap where we are in, uh, in Judges to this point. As you know, Israel, at the beginning of chapter 6, has fallen into that old familiar cycle. The Midianites have come because of Israel's unfaithfulness. They are bringing economic hardship. They're trying to bring Israel to its knees. They are calloused when it comes to their treatment of the Israelites as a, of the Israelites as a conquered people. They're going about and they're, they're destroying the foodstuffs. They're raiding and taking the cattle off. They're destroying everything and they're forcing people, if they're going to live, to get out of the population centers in places where it's easy for the Midianites to track what they're doing and to go into the caves and the cleft of the rock and to live basically... Uh, on the resources of the land out in the wilderness. And Judges chapter 6, verse 1, begins with these words. The Israelites did evil, which is uh, sort of a, a, a code for idolatry. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years He gave them into the hands of the Midianites. And at the end of that seven years, He sends them a prophet, rather than a judge at this point, He sends them a prophet who challenges Israel's understanding and practice of true repentance. He's saying, basically, you know what repentance is. You know how to cry out to the Lord. You know how to say you're sorry. But do you know how to change in light of the fact that it is God and God alone who has saved you from all of your enemies? And so here's when we get introduced to Gideon, who is a very famous character in the Bible. He's in a wine press beating or threshing out the wheat, which is just the worst place ever to try to get that task done. And the angel of the Lord comes and sits under the oak, there at uh, this oak tree at Ophrah, and then he appears to Gideon, and he says to Gideon that you are the mighty warrior of God. And Gideon is going to be the one to liberate his people from the Midianites and to return to them to this level of of economic prosperity and economic flourishing that's going to allow them to begin to populate the the, the cities and and the centers of population again. But Gideon doesn't see it. And the reason he doesn't see it is because he's having to hide from the Midianites in this really hard, dirty, nasty uh, task of threshing out the wheat and all of the chaff and all of the mess that is, but he's doing it inside of a hole in the ground. He doesn't see it. He is the least person in the smallest of the tribes of Israel. And that's his argument. I can't do this. Look at what I'm doing. Look at who I am. Look to whom I belong. He has to learn that it is God that is sending him on this mission. That it's God that is speaking to him and sending him to this task of liberating God's people and bringing them back again to a place where they can worship God. His problem is, as we talked about last week, he sees himself and his smallness in light of the fact that God is a shrunken God. 
But then God begins to reveal Himself and astonishes Gideon. In fact, Gideon begins to feel a sense of peace, probably that he's not felt in a very, very long time because of all of the things that are happening around him because of the Midianites and their enemies. He is, he is astonished at the peace that he begins to experience because of God's nearness. And he has this little test. He tears down the altar of the Baal and the Asherah pole that just happened to belong to the, to the, uh, it's on the property and belongs to his father. His father actually built it. He tears down that Baal, that altar of Baal, and the Asherah pole. He builds a proper altar to the Lord, takes his dad's second bull, which is seven years old, so it's, you know, it's a primary bull, and he offers it on that altar to God. Now, the day arrives shortly after that that the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people come in the camp in the valley of Jezreel, bent on doing harm, more harm, and, and more profound harm to Israel. And it's at this point that the Spirit of God comes on Gideon, and he blows the trumpet, calling the people to arms, and Manasseh, Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali begin to assemble. And it's here that we run into the fleece story. That famous, famous fleece story. Now, uh, all kinds of interpretations about this. I'll stick with the one that I gave you last week. That I don't think that this is um, a test that reveals the unfaithfulness and, and the lack of, of, of trust and the lack of obedience in Gideon. If that was if that was the case, if it was uh, uh, if it was going to, to to reveal that there is all of this unfaithfulness and disobedience in in Gideon, God's not going to follow through with it. It's not one of those, I'm going to put a test to God in order to make sure that I kind of get to do the thing that I really want to do. Uh, you know, I, I love Starbucks, and I'm passing a Starbucks. And I say to the Lord, if there's a parking spot in front of this, spark, this Starbucks, then I know that it's your will for me to go in and enjoy this grande breve toffee nut latte made extra hot. And sure enough, on about the tenth time I go around the store, I find an open spot. I think Gideon is struggling with the whole issue of the shrunken God. That's what the flea story is all about. He's growing in his recognition of the greatness of God. He's asking to experience the greatness of God who he is going to have to rely on to do this great thing. And that is to uh, liberate his people from the hands of the Midianites. And so Gideon says to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose early the next day. He squeezed the fleece and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. But this time make the fleece dry and let the ground be covered with dew. That night God did so, only the fleece was dry and the ground was covered with dew. And Gideon is beginning to see through that. Now, can you imagine uh, the, 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 the power over all things supernatural and, and natural that God has to, to do to make some things wet with dew and other things dry? And Gideon begins to get it. And that's why chapter 7 opens with Gideon now going into the big test that God has called him to do back in chapter 6. There are 32,000 soldiers that he has recruited out of Manasseh, Asher, Naphtali, and Zebulun. In Judges chapter 8 and verse 10, the Midianite army is 135,000. Which means that basically there's a 4 to 1 ratio in favor of soldier to soldier in favor of the Midianites. 
Now, those are not good odds for a guy that is trying to come out of this view of the shrunken God. But God addresses a number of issues with Gideon, and this is one of them. He addresses that number issue with him. And Gideon, I think, is probably relieved when God shows up and and sees the difference in numbers until he hears what it is that God has to say. In verse 2, he says, you have too many men. Now, part of this point is to remind us is that God prepares His people with intent. God prepares His people with intent. Some examples. You know, God reveals Himself in the Exodus through these plagues. You know, the really funny thing about a couple of those beginning plagues is that it looks like when you read the text out of Exodus that they also fell upon Israel itself in the land of Goshen in order for them to understand the greatness of the power of God and for them to come to faith in this God as well, while the rest, while the rest of the plagues began to fall only on the house of Egypt. And so God reveals Himself in Exodus through the plagues that bring low Egypt before asking the people to go into the promised land to defeat the Canaanites. Jesus sends His disciples off two by two on a mini-mission where they teach and they do miracles in preparation for the Great Commission that's going to come after the resurrection of Jesus. You know, at the very beginning of, of my ministry, you know, still in graduate school, Ellen and I know that, that we want to do mission work someplace. She has grown up in Africa. You know, I've, I've never been outside of the United States, spent most of my life in Texas. You know, everything outside of Texas to me is kind of a mission field. And so we decide, you know, we'll go to Africa one summer. It's 1984. We'll go to Africa on a survey trip, very young, but knew that I would end up on the mission field in some place. But, you know, we're in grad school. We are poor, poor, poor. I mean, I, it, one of the, if, if you knew the kinds of places that Ellen and I lived in while we were in grad school and in those early years of marriage, you would say, Ellen, why did you marry that dude? But, you know, we've, I've never been out of the country. I don't really know what to expect. We're trying to raise the money. It's a lot of money for us at that time. We've exhausted all of our options for raising the money. And it comes down, I need $289 to buy that ticket, and I don't have it. And $289 for me back in 1984 was like about $28,000 today. I needed $289 to buy that ticket. I didn't have it. And as I'm doing the numbers and I'm beginning to feel a little bit of despair because I've done all of this work, talked to all of these people, have exhausted all of my options. I don't have $289. I don't know where it's going to come from. What am I going to do? And as I began to feel a little bit of that despair, the mailman arrives at the mailbox. I go to the mailbox and I have received a letter with a check in it from a friend of mine in California who I I never even thought about asking. I thought he was as poor as I was. Received a letter with a check for $290. Needed $289. There's a check for $290 with a note from my friend saying, Be a man of God. Preparing me to trust Him to provide while we, though we didn't go to Africa as missionaries, we took the survey trip, we ended up doing the mission work in Brazil. It was preparing me to trust God to provide while we were on the field and went through the horrendous economic woes of Brazil in the early 1990s. That God would provide, and He did. A God who reveals Himself in the fleece test as a great, great power is the God who is going to go with Gideon. And so God replies, You have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. 
Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of these guys leave with 10,000 remaining. Now, if, if there are some chinks in the faith armor of, of Gideon, they're going to begin to show themselves. But that's still too many. Although the odds have shifted 13 to 1. We've gone from 4 to 1 to 13 to 1 in favor of Midian. It's still too many in the eyes of God. So he says, I want you to take all of these guys down to the spring of Herod. And I want you to take them down to the water. And everyone who drinks like a dog you keep and everyone else you send home. Now here, here's something to, to, to kind of think about very quickly. You know, in America, we love our dogs. And as you know, Ellen and I, we, we love the German Shepherd. We have uh, a big German Shepherd today. The one that we have right now loves to jump into trees. One day it's jumping up into the trees. It, 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 uh, it falls to the ground uh, on all four legs, but then it begins to yelp. It's messed up its elbow. It has to have surgery on an elbow on a dog. You would have thought that this dog was playing in the NBA. But the point is we love our dogs. We love our dogs. But remember that in the ancient Middle East, dogs are not beloved pets. It's never complimentary to say, you know, that guy is as fast as a dog. It's always derogatory. It's always insulting. It will always end in blows if you compare someone to a dog. And it's still that same way today. If we say that somebody looks like a dog, it's not very complimentary, is it? But there are 300 of these guys who drink like dogs. And now the odds have gone from 4 to 1 to 13 to 1 to 450 to 1. That means for every one Israelite soldier, there is 450 enemy soldiers. And the reason I bring the whole thing up about the dogs is that I don't think that these are the 300 elite soldiers of Israel. Now, you can read different commentaries and everybody has different ideas. But more than likely, they are chosen because like a dog, they are not esteemed at all. If Israel is going to win, it's going to be with 300 nerds. Which reminds us of something very important of the Bible that we should never, ever, ever forget, especially in our day, and that is God is glorified in human faithfulness. God's not glorified in our strength. God is glorified in our faithfulness. Whether weak or strong, it's in our trusting and obeying to Him. Now, the 300 assemble, they, they blow the trumpets, they smash the pitchers, and we read this. Verse 21, while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran crying out as they fled. And God has defeated this great army. And, and, and the story is going to continue and, and, and it's a great slaughter from this point on. But you know, the, the, the point for me every time I read this story is that the, the Bible, I'm, I'm reminded at how often I run into myself in the Bible. That I'm not the only one, thankfully, in the Bible that struggles with, with fear or with my own strength from time to time and the things that I'm able to do with the power between these two hands or to think up in the intellect between these two ears. That there are people that struggle with faithfulness and obedience and fear and their own strength as well. You know, Abraham struggled with faithfulness. He's the father of the faith, but he struggled with faithfulness in trusting God and having faith with God when he tells a couple of times, tells his wife, say you're my sister so that they don't kill me. Even though God has taken from Ur the Chaldees to Haran and down into the promised land. 
He says, tell these people you're my wife. That way, it won't go poorly with me. Moses argues with God in the burning bush about returning to Egypt after four decades. What is it that Moses is really struggling with when he's arguing with God in that burning bush? There's got to be some pretty profound things that that are inside of you that are stopping up that faithfulness when you're in front of a bush that is burning and God's voice is speaking to you and saying, you need to go and you say, I'd rather not. Joshua is told over and over and over and over again, be strong and courageous. You know, Peter, Peter says, I'll die with you, Jesus. I'll die with you. All of them may fall away, but I'm going to stick with you. And then Jesus is dragged away, and it's not too long. It's that very night that Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. The Bible is filled with people like Gideon and people like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Peter and me. The single most common command in the Bible, and and, and Daryl Hutchinson reminded all of this uh, to us in class this morning, the single most common command in the Bible is, is fear not. Is to fear not. And here's the deal. God knows about the Midianites that are in your life. God knows about your fears. God knows what it is that makes you feel like you're outnumbered. God knows what it is that when it happens to you or you participate in it or you find yourself in the middle of it, that you're not flourishing, that you're not prospering spiritually as you should, that you're not the person that you should be in light of the revelation of the greatness of the power of the King of the universe that has been made to us in Christ Jesus. God knows all about the Midianites in our life. God knows all the places, about all of those places where we have a hard time trusting Him. But God is also over and over and over again through whispers and through shouts and through actions and through other people has shown us that God is glorified through the faithfulness of His people when His people understand that He is faithful to them. That all of the promises that have been made in Christ, that are in Christ, are yes. That they come true because of the faithfulness of God. And it was that kind of faithfulness and it was that kind of trust in the greatness of God and the promises of God and the words of God that allowed in the first century as those people were being dragged off into different places to be massacred by the Roman Empire. That they didn't go with with a spirit of, of vengeance or of anger and crying out curses from heaven down on top of the heads of the people that, that were, were making them captive and taking them to those places of pain and torture. No, it was the greatness of God as they would sing those hymns of faith and of the greatness of God and would worship God as they faced the people that were going to take their very life. You know, Gideon is just, is just one man. He's just... One man from a small village in the middle of nowhere among a people that no one respects that God raises up to lead a small band of men who take on a powerful nation to liberate people. It's just a great story. And it's a great lesson for us. But the greater lesson is that Gideon is a foreshadow 
of a greater Gideon that is going to come some centuries later. Born about as least as you can imagine is Jesus. He's born to peasants in a manger. He's growing up in a village that no one esteems. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's a conservative little village out west of the Sea of Galilee. Kind of cut off from lots of different places because of the Arbel Mountains and, and the, the, the wadis around it. It's close to, to, to Sephoris, but it wants to keep its distance because it doesn't really like the, the, the Gentile Roman city of Sephoris. But it's not a, a place, a village, where anybody is ever esteemed. What is it that they say of Nazareth? Can anything good come from where? Nazareth. And this one, this greater Gideon, is completely and perfectly faithful to God. And he trusts God and God's ways and God's mission and God's will in getting into the fight. And he is completely and perfectly trusting of God in dying on the cross even when he doesn't want to. And in that garden across the valley of of the Kidron Valley from from the temple, there on the Mount of Olives, surrounded by trees. In the dark, he can't escape. The Bible talks about how he begins to, to sweat those, those droplets of, of sweat with, with blood. I mean, he is looking into the pit, the furnace, that he is about to plummet into. And he could have left. It would have taken a while for the Romans and, and, and everybody else to get across the Kidron Valley, he could have been gone and off into those small villages and hidden and no one would have ever found him. And he says, let this cup pass from me. But the greater Gideon is faithful to God and he dies on the cross faithfully, trustingly dependent on God to resurrect him to newness of life. He is trusting and dependent on God to be the source of what true life is. And he leads a small band of disciples to cut across the values of the Roman Empire in teaching that there is only one king and he is the king of the universe who created all things. But he has been on defeating an even more deadly enemy who has been on keeping humans from flourishing and prospering in the presence of God. We're going to ask Jeff to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you've been struggling like Gideon with, with some of these things before you that you're facing. And really, the thing that you need more than anything else is just an eyeful of God. It's a, it's a heart filled with, with, with the greatness and the might and the beauty of God. It's, it's a soul that has been captured and gripped by God. That's what you need more than anything else as you face the Midianites in your own life. The lesson is, is that God is faithful. That God prepares His people with intent that wherever they go and whatever they face, that they are up to the challenge. They are made competent because He is the one that makes them competent. And that God is glorified when we trust Him and obey Him and are faithful to Him in all things. And if we can pray pray for you or encourage you tonight, or counsel you, or help you to understand the will of God for your life, then we're going to invite some of our shepherds down here to the front. We want you to come talk to them right now as for the rest of us we stand and praise God together. I know.
my God's wondrous love to me he hath made known.